sometimes it would just be like, I'm super stressed and a lot of shit's going on. And now lo and behold, my interest in chess is peaked and I'm hyper-focused on this thing that is conveniently keeping me from the stuff that is hard work and also work that I'm insecure about or something. But then other times, probably when I felt less insecure about the work and was actually doing the work, I would just be burnt out to do chess. But sometimes I was just less interested in chess. I remember the first time I felt that was in the semester when I was still living in New York. There is a weekend tournament at the Marshall that I really wanted to play. And in the days leading up to it, I was just realizing I'm not having fun playing chess. I feel like so many people in your shoes would feel a lot of pressure. Like, this is what I love. I should play. I've literally Mm -hmm. planned my life around this. And it's kind of exactly what we talked about last weekend with you, JJ, of Mm -hmm. I really should play this game and I want the points. Yeah. (laughs) Whatever that should is. Yeah. And and it didn't click and it didn't feel good. And you left and said, I I know I shouldn't have tried to force this. Yeah. And I think something that scares me about like now that a lot of my bigger tournaments will involve planning and traveling is like it was really nice living in New York or living in Chicago where you wake up, feel like playing a tournament, chances are that weekend there is something versus like I'm already looking at plans for the National Open in June. And I think there's almost this added layer of the longer I have that build up our anticipation, the more I find my brain wanting to um, protect me by being like, you're just not going to be really feeling it. You're not in the mood for for chess. We got you. Now you don't have to feel bad when you fuck it up, what you're going to do. Are you obsessed with chess, but also kind of fun at parties? Do you keep your opening prep on your bedside table right next to your feelings journal? Welcome to the Chess Feels Podcast, the only chess podcast dedicated to the social and psychological aspects of this game we know and love. And hate. Tune in every week to join me, professional chess teacher and amateur feelings haver, JJ Lang. And me, professional therapist and amateur checkmate finder, Julia Rios. As we dive into our shared love for the game and attempt to answer the most burning question for every chess obsessor. Why are we like this? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm very much down to talk about tilt. And I see that people were asking like about tilt and the phenomenon. And I guess we've talked about it a bit, but I have to just be honest, I don't fully get what the interest is. And my main reason for wanting to do an episode is not fully understanding what makes it an interesting topic. Right. So what is not interesting about it to you or what's your gut reaction? Yeah, that it's a thing that everyone experiences probably to different degrees and probably manifests in different ways, but no one is playing their best chess all the time. And as we start to realize we're not playing our best chess, that kind of can compound the effect of not playing our best chess. Right. And then when we keep going anyways, we call that tilt and we should probably just stop playing, but we won't because either we're having fun or more likely we really kind of want to get those points back or at the very least, even if it's not about the rating, prove to ourselves that we're better than we're playing. But I guess to me, it kind of feels like, yeah, (laughs) you probably just should stop. Well, that was what I was going to ask you is what do you typically recommend to your students and what do you do? Yeah, those are two very different questions. So I'll take them one at a time. 
what I typically recommend to my students ties into what we talked about last week, which is to take a break from playing chess. I find that taking a break from chess doesn't help because people are still gripped by either wanting to see results or something, or at some level, they just really want to play more chess. But I, I just recommend take a break from playing, put yourself in a chess environment where you're not getting constant negative reinforcement from losing games. Um, whether that's solving puzzles, ideally like using a book or something. So you're not even seeing like a number going up or down with each one or like watching videos or just do some chess things where you can do well or not do well and not get this constant reminder that you're still in the middle of it as a way to kind of break the cycle. And I think that just going off cold turkey for me, at least that's when I just feel like I'm in a bad mood for a while where I was just like, yeah. I'm making myself stop, but I don't want to stop, which feels different than like. I'm doing the thing I want to do, but I'm not being constantly told I'm an idiot. Yeah, I like that. It's really, it's more of a shift, it's like the harm reduction approach, right? Rather than <laughs> the cold turkey for your abstinence. Yeah. I wonder too, I never, I don't know why I haven't thought of this before, but I, I wonder if a good strategy could possibly be to just switch to playing casual. Like what if you just mm. stop playing rated games? I feel like there's times where I have certainly felt tilted and I'm someone who really will stop playing. I get frustrated and I'm just not having fun anymore. So I'll stop. Mm-hmm it's almost hard for me to start again. Like, Mm. I I wonder if there is some advantage to almost playing through the tilt. And that's why I was thinking, JJ, even recording an episode about almost like what I was talking about earlier today of chess fizzle. Yeah. I feel like I played some pretty shitty chess (laughs) recently and I've just had a lot of trouble almost getting back into it. Like, I don't really feel a strong urge to play. And when I do play the first game I lose, I'm like, oh, fuck. I'm annoyed and I don't want to play anymore. So I just haven't really been that into it recently. Fuck chess. And by recently, I mean like the last two weeks, two or three weeks. You've played some good games in the past two weeks, but yeah. Definitely does not feel like that. Totally. But facts don't care about your feelings. Um, My feelings don't care about facts. (laughs) I definitely find that aspect, like the fizzle, a little more interesting than the tilt. And I agree that it's probably related I guess like to me, when you're playing shitty and you're aware you're playing shitty and you're getting emotional about playing shitty, that's going to make you play shittier. But the fizzle is a super interesting one because I feel like that is one where I don't really know where that comes from or it doesn't seem to come from the same place for everyone. Like There are plenty of times where I'll notice that my rating has gone down or I've lost more than I won or something, but I'm having a blast and I feel like whether I'm converting or not, especially in faster online games, I'm, I'm so process-oriented that I don't really give a shit about the results. And there, as I'm realizing I'm playing wilder games or I'm playing great games but losing a lot, it's even possible that's contributing to a tilted effect. But I'm still focused more on the process and stop that session energized. And then there are other times where, for various reasons, and I have a couple of guesses of what those might be, almost the opposite, where sometimes my rating roughly stays steady or even goes up, and I'm still just like, this wasn't enjoyable. But it almost feels like the fizzle isn't necessarily as results-driven as the tilt is. There's my thesis. And then I also have questions almost about direction of causality there, because it's easy to say, oh, when I'm kind of losing interest and I'm making dumb mistakes, that's creating this fizzle effect. And I totally feel that. But then immediately I kind of want to challenge myself in that thinking and say, but isn't the fizzle why I'm not attending to this game and I'm doing other Mm -hmm. things and my heart's not really in it and I'm not trying and I'm making stupid mistakes. 
When I'm in that state that I've been in for the last couple of weeks, I don't calculate positions deeply. I'm just not clicking in and I don't know how or even how helpful it would be to force myself to do that. Yeah. Yeah. One question I have there, because I've kind of accused myself of something similar. So I'm going to ask if this resonates with you in a way that's not attempting to be accusatory. Well, I'm already offended. So. You, Julia Rios, the accused, stand on trial for... Um, <laughs> do you think that on some level, that feeling could be a bit of a defense mechanism where if you're aware that you've been playing shitty, then by checking out a bit, you're not giving yourself the opportunity to show that you are still, in fact, playing shitty and instead you're just not feeling like calculating? It is very possible. Uh-huh. It's very possible. I just don't feel like when I play chess, like the stakes are very high. <laughs> No one's watching me. No one cares. But those are wonderful justifications for why the stakes aren't high. But does it actually feel like the stakes aren't high? It doesn't really feel high stakes to me. Um, mm-hmm. And I have been actually playing more unrated just because I've been playing so madly that I'm sort of like, I want to try to play through the tilts. Mm-hmm. And maybe then I just don't feel invested at all. I've yeah. had a few good games, like you said. I, I literally just played one earlier tonight. I played a 10 minute and I played a really good game. And when it was over... I felt nothing at all. Yeah. And my brain has been doing this thing whenever I win. My brain always does this, but it's recently more often my brain has been doing that thing where any position I win, any end game I grind out, I'm like, well, my opponent just sucks. My opponent made mistakes and I capitalized. But isn't that literally how you win a game of chess? Yes. I've been having a hard time feeling any sense of accomplishment. Mm-hmm. And it's reflected in how I'm interacting with chess. Like I'm not studying anything. Mm. Usually throughout the day, I'll play puzzles in the background of whatever I'm doing. I haven't been doing that. When I see puzzles on Twitter, I just scroll. I'm not looking at anything. Like my heart's not in it. And that makes me feel really sad, but I don't know how to force it. Yeah. Or whether, like you said, whether that should even be the goal. Yeah. I love what you were saying earlier about looking at like the causality or direction of fit, because earlier you're saying, well, yeah, it almost sounds like, no, it's not that you're checking out and that's causing the fizzle. The fizzle is why you were checking out. But then here you're describing something different where like, even when I play a great game, I feel nothing. And there it's like, okay, so the fizzle didn't cause the great game and the great game didn't negate the fizzle. I love that fizzle has just become this term we've coined now. It's going to catch on. I feel it, <laughs> it already. On the premier chess and psychology podcast with an explicit rating. <laughs> chess fizzle. Oh my, that's something else. Um, <laughs> I don't know. What is it? <laughs> I, I'll, I'll show you later. Okay. <laughs> that's my joke. But yeah, no amount of good games is going to shake the fizzle the way that it can really feel like, okay, I'm off my tilt. So before we even get to that question of how do I force myself through it, what really is this fizzle reflecting? Because it doesn't seem to just be a result of my games aren't going well. Right. I know. And I'm not sure. And Uh even after we recorded our episode on rating and you had a great suggestion about like, look for games you're excited about, make a study. I felt like that was a great idea. Uh Uh-huh but no desire to do that. That's the problem, Hmm. right? (laughs) Yeah. It's funny. I'm like kind of laughing at myself. This is how my clients must feel when I recommend like behavioral activation for depressive (laughs) symptoms. They're like, well, I don't want to do that. It's like, yeah, no, I know you don't want to, (laughs) (laughs) but it works. I swear. Yeah. But I'm totally feeling that. I don't know. I just haven't had that itch. And is part of that just kind of recognizing like that ebbs and flows for all of us. So is it almost like just chill out and do other things besides chess and it'll come back inevitably? 
Or not. Yeah, but it probably will. But yeah, I, I definitely think that like forcing it can be a very dangerous thing. Though I think what you're bringing up is a related point, which is that the sorts of things that give us that spark or that passion out of chess, it's not just chess played well that's going to do that. I think that there really can be a social aspect to it that is sometimes missed, mm. where the analogy I always think of with my degenerate grad school days was how I often learned more from directed reading groups on a topic with other grad students than I did from classes or meetings with professors. There's something about being around people who I genuinely like, but not trying to impress a professor or those sorts of things, but also everyone there being roughly on a similar level, but also actually trying and it kind of being a good vibe that I feel like contributes a lot to those being incredibly fruitful ways to learn something in a way that I really wish that a lot of chess studying wasn't so solitary, wasn't so much the default is you do your puzzles or read your books on your own. And maybe just maybe you find a training partner once a week and maybe just maybe you talk about your game together. I feel like if I could create an environment where I'm doing a lot more socially, I would be both a lot more accountable, a lot more focused in there and like enjoying it a lot more. But it's also really hard to set that up. And I think it's also really hard to kind of give up the flexibility or autonomy that for some of us is necessary of like, I'm going to fit the studying in whenever I can. And I can't, in fact, just book aside two hours every week in perpetuity. That's just not how my life works. But there is something that I think could be very attractive about that. And I wish it was more of the norm for how we study. Yeah. I agree. I know. It's like, oh yeah, that's a great idea. I'm probably never going to do any of that. Yeah. It also <laughs> sounds hard. Why would I want my chess time to be time where I'm having to be on performing, engaging, attending that's to other exactly people? That's exactly how I feel. When yeah. Imagining doing any of those things, JJ, sounds so exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> There's like yeah. so few people I feel like I can spend that kind of time with and not feel like a little bit drained. <laughs> so when I find those people, I'm like, okay, great. You're one of my people. It's a very small collection. But I think at the end of the day, I am a true introvert in the sense that I have a very small number of very close friends. And mm -hmm. my desire to learn how to play chess with a bunch of strangers is very low. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, is playing like four hours of blitz in a row and losing most of your games also exhausting? Yes, I still would rather do that than have to socialize. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> or I would kind of rather just do something else. Like there are shockingly things that I really enjoy besides just chess. So more often in the last few weeks, I've just not played any chess at all. Like <laughs> last night, I just was not feeling a hundo P and my partner was kind of like, I can cheer you up. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I don't think so, but give it your best shot. I'm excited to see what you come up with. This man turns on PBS, a nature bears documentary. Oh. Bears are famously my favorite animal. This in the is world. canon. This is can. I can't describe how much I love bears. I love them so much. They make my heart feel so full. I love to look at them. I love to think about them. I am a bear. And like, <laughs> worked. I was like so mad. I was like, <laughs> why am I smiling? Why do I feel great? Yeah. Bears are the best. So anyway, watched a documentary on bears for an hour and felt great and didn't play blitz on my phone and didn't do puzzles and then got a good night's sleep. So maybe there's something to be said for that. Like we don't necessarily want to demonize that. Is it okay to like take a few weeks and step back from the chest a little bit? I also want to tie into the question you're asking about in the previous episode, drawing those distinctions between process-oriented and results-oriented. Is it right in saying that even the question of how do I push myself through that fatigue to get back into it, that sounds in a sense kind of results-oriented 
where like, and I can't tell because in the sense it's process oriented, you're saying, I want to love chess again. I want to be in love with the process, but yeah. there's another sense in which it kind of does feel like, well, you know, I feel like if I'm not studying, playing, chessing, et cetera, there's an issue. And one thing that I do remind my students of sometimes is that one of the luckiest things about them in the world is that they get to be chess hobbyists instead of chess professionals. And so if they actually just want to take a few weeks off of practicing chess, that will have no impact on their livelihood, profession, well-being, aspirations, et cetera. And that they can do that whenever the fuck they want. And holding themselves to a different standard than that is just criminal. Yeah. And so unnecessary. The funniest thing too, is it's kind of making me realize this same time last year, the same exact thing happened to me. I'm a grad student. This is the end of the semester at the University of Michigan. I got totally burnt out. I was teaching. I was doing a full clinical caseload, preparing my prospectus for my dissertation. And there was certainly at least one or two months where I played very minimal chess and I didn't feel all this pressure to be doing it. And then eventually I think like some of my friends bugged me or like, Hey, let's go back to our daily games. And I started getting back into it. But yeah, I guess as like life came up, I did have that freedom as a hobbyist to be like, I can literally not play chess for two months and nothing, (laughs) nothing bad happened. Wait, that's so fascinating because I have two very different questions on there. First of all, you're describing this sort of like fatigue or burnout with approach to chess. And I really wanted to jump in then and be like, is that how you feel exclusively with chess? Or is that sort of a general feeling and it's impacting your chess? Because I'm sure that you're not the only person who's going to been like, yeah, I've just really like my head hasn't been in chess for a bit. Oh, and by the way, a really stressful deadlines coming up at work. And it's like, oh, oh yeah. And you haven't really been in into it in chess recently, huh? Like that. <laughs> tell me more. But the other question I was going to ask is it sounds like the way you were describing it a year ago, you found it pretty easy or maybe natural or intuitive to just kind of check out of chess when you weren't feeling it, maybe more than now. And a year ago, you were not on chess Twitter and now you are. So I was going to ask if you feel like there's a sort of pressure being in more social spaces or having friends like me who are taking chess very seriously, making it feel more like there's this internalized should versus when it was really just a hobby you and your friends had the kind of in a vacuum. Yeah, those are both really good questions in terms of really stressful things coming up. No, you know, I can't think of anything. (laughs) I'm joking. Yes, I'm about to have huge life transitions starting internship, working clinical full-time, defending my PhD, personal life stuff. And I guess part of me almost wishes that would kind of light a fire. Like, Hmm. okay, I've got deadlines coming up. I should play as much chess as I possibly can now, like the calm before the storm. Oh, okay. Yeah. The the way I describe that phenomenon for me is I get pre-tired. Like when I know a lot of things are coming up, I just get exhausted knowing that I'm going to be exhausted. So to me, it's like, yeah, why would that light a fire under your ass to do anything? You, Julia Rio, self-described bear, presumably would hibernate if you know you're going to have a busy season coming up. (laughs) That's true. But it's a good point. And like, it's so obvious now that you say it, it's probably it. And when this passes, which inevitably will, and this is the time of year that I usually feel this, I'm sure all that will come back. And maybe it really is about recognizing like, yes, I'm a hobbyist. Just wait and ride the ebbs and the flows. But to kind of circle to your other question about being Mm -hmm. in more social chess spaces, definitely. And it's a space Mm -hmm. I want to engage in. Yeah, I don't mean to like demonize chess Twitter. Chess Twitter is so fascinating because not everyone in that space is a hobbyist, right? Between full-time teachers and authors and strong players and world-class players, there's a lot of people on there talking about their chess in a way that is maybe a relationship to chess that we wish we could have. But still, it's hard to not compare yourself to the people who really are training for their next elite tournament or something. That's true. I had to go through like a real grief 
process. I talked to a lot of friends and loved ones about this sense of loss, which was when I started getting more into the chess space and meeting more people who played chess and getting on chess Twitter, realizing how much time people had to play and devote their lives to chess and people who were streaming chess all day and playing hours a day posting, here's my 20 hour a week study plan and realizing how much I really wanted that. So a different feeling than now of like, my brain is craving this. I would do that. I would play chess for 10 hours a day if I could. Yeah. And I simply cannot. And I, I, there's no life ahead of me where that fits in, in the next decade, at least. Mm-hmm. And I was grieving. Yeah. I really was talking to all my friends about this. And I had one really good friend who will never listen to this, but if for some reason she is. So I have a good friend here in Michigan in my program named Emily, who was like, Julia, I get it. This happened to me when I like, played soccer in college and got injured and had to quit. You had a little dream. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like your dream is dying <laughs> you have to give up your dream and i know how much that hurts and it actually just felt so good to hear someone articulate that and say that and recognize yeah i want this thing so bad yeah it's not in life we want things that we don't get them <laughs> so that actually was more painful than what i'm feeling now Honestly, whatever. I can literally log out of Twitter for three weeks and nothing happens. Well, you have to run the pod account. <laughs> Other than that, like my life doesn't fall to pieces. The pod will, the pod account will fall to pieces though. I mean, you're going to like get back in. It's like, why are we blocked by everyone? And no. I don't even just mean chess accounts. Like, why are we blocked by Stouffer's lasagna? <laughs> I love that that is the first thing that came to mind for you. It was like the um, fourth, but the first appropriate one. This episode is actually sponsored by Stouffer's lasagna. <laughs> so we've been trying to figure out how to fit that in. And I think JJ just did a great job. So. Yeah, it's part of a, a upcoming deal with Chefable, actually. And so if you're listening to this and you suddenly have a craving and you do go buy Stouffer's lasagna in the next you know, couple of weeks, Send me one. make sure you post a picture, tag <laughs> us and help us build the brand anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, so that was actually a way more difficult process was sort of accepting that chess will never play that role in my life. But it's so funny. The grass is always greener. <laughs> Now I miss that. Like, at least I felt something. (laughs) (sighs) And I think it's also the longer you spend time in that space and you see two things. First of all, a lot of study plans that are obviously just unrealistic or overambitious or just misguided in some way. And second, the people following study plans just aren't improving. And I think that also kind of can kill the drive a little bit of, wow, I'm surrounded by all of these people who are as passionate as I am and who want this as much as I do slowly turns into like, what if... I'm one of the idiots. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh, that's so funny. Yeah, and I guess, I don't know, maybe you almost have the luxury, JJ, to get that bird's eye view from where you are as someone who has been playing chess for so long and knows kind of what's effective. And And what's not effective. Exactly. And as someone who's really new to chess and doesn't have that very sort of long-term perspective, how does this play out over months and years? Maybe I just don't have that. I come in, I'm like, wow, these people are crushing it. Like they are living out all my dreams. And that might be a very, you know, limited view. Yeah. And I mean, I know this comes back into a conversation we had very briefly in the first episode, but with imposter syndrome, where you get into a new environment and you start to think that everyone else is crushing it really deserves to be here. And like you're there by mistake and you don't, you're not crushing it or in the same way. 
And the way it's usually pitched is, and then over time, you start to realize you are awesome and you do deserve to be there. But the way most people kind of seem to experience is, and then they realize everyone else is also kind of an idiot. Everyone else feels this way. Everyone kind of stumbled into where they are. We're all figuring it out as we go along. And I honestly think that's beautiful. Kind of along those lines, something I do in my clinical work a lot is really help my clients understand the utility and the very helpful function of jealousy. Jealousy Mm -hmm. is such a useful emotion. It really helps us to better understand the direction that we want to go, the things that we want in life. What are our desires? What are our preferences? What are our passions? What do we feel like is missing? So whenever those feelings of jealousy arrive with the therapy clients I work with, I get really excited. Like, oh, this is not a bad thing at all. This is awesome. This is a signal about what you want. I don't know how useful that is to say, but <laughs> no, 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 no. I think I think that's awesome. I think that makes a lot of sense. This is obviously something that you love. It obviously is something that you're passionate about and have put a lot of time and effort into. It is your thing, even if it's also lots of other people's things. But then to see yeah, all these other um, people have a relationship with your thing. That, that's what it is. Yeah, yeah. Back to the dream dying. It's like, yeah. this was my little dream. So to see other people getting to live that dream, it's just like, it's your dream. Oh, yeah. and it's not even like a possessiveness. Like I want to mm-hmm. exclusively have the dream and I don't want other people to have the dream. It's more like it just, it's just on display. It's like, I want this thing so bad. I, I really, really do. I don't know how much of this will be useful in the episode, but I don't know. It's I mean, I feel like you must remember that JJ. I feel like I talked about that with you yeah. in the fall a lot yeah. of like, I'm so excited about this thing. I wish I had the ability to do that. And that was happening during one of the busiest times in my PhD program. It was a whirlwind and yeah, I don't know. It's hard. Eventually, I feel like what helped me again was kind of looking around at all of these limitations in my life that were the reasons why I couldn't Mm -hmm. have this thing that I wanted Mm -hmm. and being like, oh, I love those things. (laughs) I could drop out of my program. I could leave my family. (laughs) There's like lots of things I could do. Um, Mm -hmm. I have no desire to do them. And it really helped point me back to gratitude of, right, I can't engage with chess the way I want to because there's all these parts of my life that require a lot of time and energy that I love. Absolutely. And maybe tying that into how like a general sort of fatigue or stress or whatnot can contribute to those feelings, not just of tilt, but also of just the fizzle. I suppose you could do something similar being like, okay, yeah, like, why do I not have the energy for chess right now? Well, life is really busy and hard. I'm doing well with work or I'm meeting these deadlines or I'm about to pass these huge fucking milestones or it's really busy because things with my personal life are taking time because my personal life is really valuable to me and I value putting the time and energy and effort into maintaining those relationships. And if that means that I'm going to not have enough in the tank to focus through a full game of chess, that's ultimately a good thing. And I could quit my job and (laughs) leave my family and maybe be a bit more focused. My rating could go up 50 points, but that is actively not what I want. Um, I do it for 200. <laughs> uh, I've done this thought experiment. I'm like, what would you be willing to give up to be like 2600 at chess? I don't know. It's a dangerous road to go down. Yeah. No, no, no. We don't open those doors here. No, no. Ultimately, my heart says nothing. I wouldn't give up any of this, but yeah. it's scary to even think about. But um, anyways, segueing back into something we were talking about way earlier, because I just pretty much started the episode by being like, Julia, you said we should talk about tilt. And I said, I don't want to do that. And then pretty quickly, I was like, oh, well, fizzle, that sounds like something I want to talk about. The question I have for you, JJ, is because you've been in this space so much yeah. longer than I have, and I yeah. feel like you have a lot of insight. <sighs> 
I'm assuming that you've experienced that sense of fizzle too. And you've had those ebbs and flows. Is that something that you've experienced kind of maybe even since coming back to chess since you were living in New York? And how have you moved through that if you have experienced that? Yeah, completely. Yes, I absolutely have. So first, I think some were definitely correlated positively and others inversely with amounts of stress or busyness. Sometimes it would just be like, I'm super stressed and a lot of shit's going on. And now, lo and behold, my interest in chess is peaked and I'm hyper-focused on this thing that is conveniently keeping me from the stuff that is hard work and also work that I'm insecure about or something. But then other times, probably when I felt less insecure about the work and was actually doing the work, I would just be burnt out to do chess. But sometimes, definitely, I think it was unrelated. And I was just less interested in chess. But I guess for me, at least, I've never really felt too much interest in trying to cash out what that logical relationship is. And to just say, okay, I'm not feeling it. And that's cool. But sometimes that can almost be confusing. I remember the first time I felt that was in the semester when I was still living in New York. There was a weekend tournament at the Marshall that I really wanted to play. And like Amelia and I had worked out my travel plans kind of around the assumption that I wouldn't be able to leave till after that tournament. And in the days leading up to it, I was just realizing I'm not having fun playing chess. There's this concert I would really love to see with one of my friends that would interfere with one of the rounds. There's another thing that I'd want to do that would interfere with the round. Both of those sound infinitely more enjoyable to me than the chess. I'm just not going to play the tournament. But I think I remember that because that kind of hammered home for me, this feeling of like, oh, yeah, I just really strongly do not want to be doing this thing that for the past couple of months is the only thing I want to be doing. Cool. I'm yeah. glad you shared that example yeah. because I feel like so many people in your shoes would feel a lot of pressure. Like, this is what I love. I should play. I've literally mm-hmm. planned my life around this. And it's kind of exactly what we talked about last weekend with you, JJ, of mm-hmm. I really should play this game and I want the points. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever that should is. Yeah. And and it didn't click and it didn't feel good. And you left and said, I I know I shouldn't have tried to force this. Yeah. And I think something that scares me about like now that a lot of my bigger tournaments will involve planning and traveling is like it was really nice living in New York or living in Chicago where you wake up feel like playing a tournament chances are that weekend there is something versus like I'm already looking at plans for the National Open in June and I think there's almost this added layer of the longer I have that build up our anticipation the more I find my brain wanting to um, protect me by being like you're just not going to be really feeling it you're not in the mood for for chess, we got you. Now you don't have to feel bad when you fuck it up, what you're going to do. And if anything, knowing that I have to plan or commit for the trip now makes me almost feel the sense of, I can feel my brain starting to put me not in the mood to play, um, which is oh. separate, which is separate. Cause sometimes I think just straight up, you're not in the mood and you don't know. And it would be nice if you, if I'm this could all be spontaneous. Mood. That's exactly what this episode is about. <laughs> <laughs> like that is counterfactual to the last hour you spent talking about your chest fizzle. I'm pretty sure last episode towards the end, I said that I don't really struggle with anxiety. <laughs> um, but no, I can definitely. So separate from like having those moments of fizzle, I definitely feel like the the more advanced time I have to know that I'm going to be playing at this particular time. And especially now that I'm investing the energy and the resources in going out there the more I can kind of feel like some of the performance anxiety taking the form of, yeah, maybe you just don't want to do this. Maybe you're just not in the mood for chess right now. And that's like a great way to kind of feel like whatever happens is going to be fine um, because you just weren't really giving it your all anyways. And, you know, bad luck, right? Like you planned around it and just weren't feeling it. And I totally recognize that for me as a 
sort of defense mechanism that my anxiety takes. But I think some of it, besides being a defense mechanism, is the anxiety of knowing I'm going to be playing and having performance anxiety. That itself is a very tiring thing. And I think that as I'm just tired going through that process, it's not just a defense mechanism. Like in some sense, it's my brain trying to take care of me by being like, here, we're just going to make you not excited about chess. So you don't have to worry about doing bad at chess. Yeah. If I don't put my heart in it, my heart can't break if it doesn't go the way I want. And then you can stop spending all of our precious resources and energy stressing about a chess tournament five weeks from now and just like cook yourself some damn food. It's so cool the way our brains really are looking out for us. It's true though. They're they're trying their hardest. Yeah. I don't want to invest myself in this thing that has the potential to feel heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah. And so I can definitely recognize that. And I don't think that's the only kind of fizzle there is, but I definitely recognize that as a very planning or forward focused kind of possible cause of fizzle. Like almost if I let myself care about this, yeah. I will care about it so much. And then if it doesn't work out the way that I want it to especially because I can't be doing this every weekend and I've invested so much, it's going to (laughs) hurt. So it's easier to say I don't care. Yeah. And if anything, the fact that all of that does make so much sense as a reasonable reaction to have, that almost makes the other sorts of fizzle harder to make sense of because it's like, I can't even point to the height. Like you were saying earlier, it's like, no, and I'm just playing blitz on my couch. No, it doesn't feel high stakes. And so it's like, so why, why am I having this sort of feeling now? It's one thing if like I'm having this feeling after like I booked a trip to play my first OTB, but why am I having this about this thing <laughs> that yeah. does not feel, feel there? And I think that just is the piece where it's like, yeah, you know, sometimes if anything, maybe the reason why we're able to replicate these reactions of I'm just feeling like my heart's not in it isn't because those are solely going to be protective mechanisms against like caring too much or wanting too much, but because sometimes straight up our heart's just not going to be in it for whatever reason. And it makes sense that our brains can simulate that response as a protective thing, but fundamentally it can just be our heart's not always going to be in it. And that's definitely happened to me a few times since then. Like like I go weeks on end where I like barely play online or I'll teach and that's it. Or sometimes I'm really excited about preparing lessons for students, but not my own game. Sometimes I'm like, playing my own games up into the start of and through the beginning of my students' lessons. And if anything, I think that the one thing I try and do is I just try to ride that, honestly. I think I mentioned when we were talking about study plans a bit last week, I've never been somebody who's liked saying to a rigid plan because, and this is goes into like the luxury of the hobbyist too, it's that even though like I value improving and I have a lot of time to work on my chess to kind of just ultimately put a little trust into eventually I will hit on all the things I need to hit on. And you can take that out of context. <laughs> I'll eventually check off all the goals I need to check off. I'll eventually cover all the areas. And so if I really don't feel like doing this thing or working in this way right now, so be it. And if I realize in a year that it's been a year since I've studied end games, we can put a regular endgame training session on there, even if it feels like pulling teeth. But if this yeah. week isn't endgame week, so be it. I'm not going to feel bad about that. If this week isn't yeah. chest week, so be it. As someone who's never had an endgame week, <laughs> if I did have that mentality, I would really just hate myself all of the time. <laughs> so I'm glad to hear it's good to not add on that layer of self-loathing. Oh no, for you and your lack of endgame knowledge, you should have self-loathing. <laughs> This no, is me. I We're talking. I don't need it. But yeah, everyone tweet at Julia. You should feel bad. I refuse to hate myself for this. I like to think it's actually part of the charm. The way that I can have a great position and be up like plus three and just throw it all away at the end. 
it doesn't bother me as much as it needs to. I'm just imagining like a meme where it's a bunch of charts of white is totally winning games. And then like yours, it just like drops off at the end. And then the caption is just like, I'm not like the other girls. <laughs> yeah, I'm like way worse than the other girls. <laughs> I feel like I'm so proud of myself in so many games to make it to the end game. I actually felt this way, JJ, the first time you and I played. <laughs> if you actually look at the eval, you demolished me. But the fact that I made it 50 moves, which you turned into 70 moves by under promoting and bullying me. Under promoting multiple times. <laughs> yeah, I remember. I was so proud of myself for even making it that far. I honestly felt like I won. I showed the game to my partner and was like, I did it. I made a friend. (laughs) (laughs) I remember realizing how happy you were that the game was still going on. And I did find that really endearing. (laughs) I was so happy. It reminds me of the beautiful Ben Feingold quote you tucked Mm, in two episodes mm. ago of play chess like you don't want it to end. When you were under promoting, that's how I felt. Like he's just enjoying this experience so much. He doesn't want it to be over. This is not a neg. <laughs> he's not bullying you. You have a friend now. Why not, though? <laughs> I refuse to believe that anyone would treat me like that. So that's how my brain is protecting me. <laughs> mm-hmm. So kind of at this point, I'm back to where I started with, which is I really don't give a shit about Tilt or want to talk about it. <laughs> I kind of don't give a shit about tilt either, mostly because, like I said, I don't actually feel like I've experienced true tilt Mm. because I'm so punishment sensitive, which we talked about in literally episode two, Mm -hmm. that I just stopped playing. So I've actually never had like a 100 or 150 point tilt. Mm-hmm. If I lose two or three in a row, I'm I'm sort of like, well, I, I have other be, ways to spend my time. And to be clear, I have had those tilts. And so it's not just so much, this isn't a real thing, or it's not so much, you should know better. It really is just like, yeah, I experience this quite regularly, but I am not bothered by it. And maybe there is something interesting there because I know that that is not everyone's reaction. Some people, when they tilt, it really shakes them. Some people are really upset when they get tilted. Some people get mad at themselves or the entire world. But I I think for me, maybe this is just a piece of exposure. It's just the number of times I've lost a couple hundred points in just playing when I can't stop. But I know that they'll come back, maybe not tomorrow. It just doesn't bother me. But maybe the part of tilt that I find most interesting is when I'm upset that I've tilted so many points, especially if it's like on a public account where people will follow me. Um, But just in general, even if it's not having the thought of, oh, that is so much worse than my real rating. Sure. I am so much better than that. And going back to a conversation about the pseudo objectivity of ratings, I feel like now part of my motivation to want to keep playing or part of my frustration that the number has gone down isn't just that it's gone down, but that it's off, that it's not representative that I don't want people to see that number, or I don't want to be reminded for myself of that number. And if anything, this is also, I think, related to the sort of addiction piece too, because even when my rating is what it usually is, if a couple of the games I play are shitty games, I'll have a feeling of, oh, well, those are aberrations, even though like they happen all the time. And I think something I find interesting there is when you break down what the ratings mean, (laughs) if your rating's gone down a lot, it means you've just lost more games against people of certain ratings than you have before. And it doesn't really mean anything about your quality of play, your ability as a chess player. Certainly doesn't mean anything about your ability outside your life as a chess player. (laughs) But maybe it's just helpful to name that there can be this sort of feeling of like, I am tilted and fixated on this because it does feel like a reflection on myself in some way. 
Of course. Yeah. Those are two different pieces, I think. One is everyone can see this number. (laughs) And for you, JJ, I don't want people to think that I'm a 2000 player and that can feel like pressure. But then also Mm -hmm. that other layer of this is how I see myself (laughs) and I don't want to see myself in this light. So hopefully everything we kind of talked about in the last episode with rating and how to sort of distance yourself Mm. from that pure focus on the number might help some people. But it, it is interesting to think about how that will likely really rear its head um, during an episode of Tilt where that does go way down. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Kind of like looking in the mirror and not liking what you see. <laughs> yeah, I, I almost feel like I have this opposite feeling. <laughs> this huh. is so bizarre, but actually might be very self-protective and adaptive. So maybe cool. people can actually steal this from me. But <laughs> whenever I tilt even a little bit and mm-hmm. I my rating drops below what I'm used to playing, mm-hmm. I actually get a little bit happy because I'm like, great. Now Lee Chess will match me with people who suck and I can have some easy games. Like I almost look forward to like, yeah, mm-hmm. I want to crush somebody. So I'm like, great. I'm tilting. I need some easier games. Uh-huh. This problem will take care of itself. And it usually does. That's the part that actually fucks me up because when I think the way I tilt or I get so in my head or I just let myself get so much easier distracted, one thing I'll notice will happen when I'm tilting is if I see a tweet or get an email or something, I'll let 45 seconds of my 3-0 game run down as I respond because I just genuinely don't give a shit. But then I still get very upset that I'm losing to people 200 points lower than the people I should be paired against, even though it's very much within my control and I very much understand what just happened. That that kind of like puts it on hyperdrive. Yeah. And it, it's almost that same effect we were talking about earlier, where it's like, you hmm. can't fire me, I quit. <laughs> like, <laughs> you can't tilt me. I don't care about this game. But then it exacerbates the tilt. And then we pretend like we care less and we're checking our email more, yeah. which makes sense, right? It's almost like a self-soothing. The only thing that doesn't make sense is why we keep clicking new game. <laughs> you can listen to episode two. Oh, yeah. <laughs> figure out why. No, well, I'm not addicted. To, I don't have an addictive personality, so. Yeah, yeah. I agree. As a therapist, I'll sign that piece of paper for you. I'm trying to win most improved at therapy this season. I'll sign that permission slip. So really what this episode is about under the guise of being about tilt is just this general kind of ebb and flow of interest in chess. And I think something that's really nice about this is we had John McKenzie on as a guest and he talked about a general chess ambivalence or even just like pieces of chess hatred. But I think there is a general sort of pressure that a lot of people who love chess feel to be like, oh, you love chess? Name three of her albums. Or hear that version of like, oh, you love chess? You have a free hour. Shouldn't you want to spend it studying? Or like, shouldn't you want to be so elated when things go well? And just like anything else in life, the answer is a lot of the time, no. And that's perfectly okay. And it was honestly really refreshing. It felt very good or almost like a nice release to just talk about, yeah, a lot of the time I don't give a shit. And I've definitely had students say, like, I just really haven't wanted to play for a few days. I'm not sure what's going on. And I'm like, you haven't wanted to play for a few days. That's what's going on. (laughs) And to be like, yeah, you can be chess obsessed. You can be chess repressed. You can be chess repressed. You can be accused of your addiction to chess actively harming your relationships with your loved ones and still want to take a day off. And it doesn't mean that (laughs) there's something wrong with you. And you can plan your vacations with your loved ones around a chess tournament. And then at the end of the day, say, nah, (laughs) (laughs) we should all have that freedom. (laughs) One one more thing I'm going to add in, though. I I think we sort of notice and accept that ebb and flow in all areas of our life. 
even in our friendships. Mm. Um, we have certain seasons of our life where we're really close to certain people. And then we might spend some time apart and we come back together and it's like nothing has been missed at all. Or I'm even thinking something that's been so constant in my life is this love of reading. I was that little kid who always had my head in a book. Nerd. Nerd. Yeah. But there certainly have been periods of time where I have been busy and I haven't been devouring novels. I've never have worried. What if I never read a book again in my life? Uh Like that love has been so constant. And maybe it's just because, you know, my relationship with Jess is still so new. We're still kind of maybe in the honeymoon phase or coming out of the honeymoon phase that year and a half, you know, and kind of having that same trust. Which I think a lot of listeners, I think will be at a similar point actually, where yeah. Getting into it like a similar length of time. Yeah. Well, I'm not like I'm not like the other listeners. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I respond to your messages. <laughs> um, it's nice that you even let the other listeners message you, which I do not, but let is a strong word. <laughs> you let them message you. I will stop doing that. No, you I love it. I love it. <laughs> Um, so actually that's a good pitch, I think, to kind of finish off this episode. If anyone listening has some advice for me, how do I continue to foster that love for chess, reignite the spark, get the spice back? Please message your ideas to at chessfields. Please. But don't say it's about chess. Please, definitely. All responses <laughs> will be written personally by Julia, and every response will be from Julia and entirely her advice and legally binding as a therapist. With a picture of me. <laughs> <laughs> No, no one wants a picture of me. All right. Well, I think that just about wraps it up. All right. Uh, fuck chess. See you next Ugh. week. As always, thank you for letting us take you into this deep, dark forest. Where two plus two equals five. And the path leading out is only wide enough for listeners like you. Intro and outro music provided by JPEG Mafia. We would be truly touched if you subscribe and leave us a glowing review. And tell all of your friends. Yeah, all of them. And every week, we'll be gifting one lucky subscriber who leaves a five-star review a lifetime premium diamond membership to leechess.org. Unlocking all of their features. Even that? Especially that. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at ChessFuelsPod. Oh, and if you didn't like what you heard, do not hesitate to message any feedback. No matter how critical or scathing. Directly to Mr. Dodgy, our social media manager, even though he doesn't know it. (laughs) At Chess Problem. One. Yeah. Yeah.